This morning we will be turning to the book of the Psalms, and it will be Psalm 22. Psalm 22, and we will be covering verse 19. Psalm 22, verse 19, where we read, But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. This verse is similar to our Lord's words that are found in verse 11, where we read there, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. It is, though, almost identical to Psalm 71 and verse 12, where we read, O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste for my help. Psalm 71 contains prayers and petitions by its author who is under great distress. Some think Psalm 71 was composed by David in his old age. He speaks of himself as one who was being oppressed by an enemy and that he had none to help him. Verse 4 of that same psalm says, Deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. He turns then to the Lord, for he knows from past experiences that God has delivered him, and he has hopes that God will do so now. He had been taught of God from his youth, and now that he is old, he's looking to God to be his help as before. Verses 17 and 18 reads, O God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared thy wondrous works. Now also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation, and thy power to every one that is to come. Now, Psalm 22 is very similar. Our Lord himself in Psalm 22 has pleaded with God, and one of his arguments was that God had been with him since his younger days. And we read this, you remember, in verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 22. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. And our Lord goes on to say, based upon that, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Now, in comparison to these two psalms, we can learn that God, of course, is with his people, that he is our help, he is our hope, he's our strength, he's our refuge, and that he is worthy of our trust and our faith. And we learn, too, that our Lord Jesus does sympathize with his people. He, too, in the days of his flesh upon this earth, had gone through some terrible troubles and distresses. And as he, as he stood as our surety to satisfy God's justice for our sins, he did make a perfect satisfaction. He could so because he took upon our nature in order to make reconciliation for the sins of his people, Hebrews 2, verse 17. And to his sufferings such pains for us that he might know how to sympathize with us in our pains, trials, temptations, and afflictions. And we read this in Hebrews 2, verse 18. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Now, because we're all one, that is, 
as he is in union with us and we with him, he can so then identify with us in that he can feel our infirmities, uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Such then is our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, one with his people, knowing our sorrows, fears, and questions, and one who suffers with us. As he says through the prophet Isaiah in the 63rd chapter there in verses 8 and 9, for he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them, and carried them all the days of old. Now in our passage in this psalm before us, he prays for himself, pleading with his God for help in his affliction, just as we would and just as we should, and are encouraged to do so. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard, and that he feared. Now our text reads again in verse 19, But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. In opening our text, I want to first call our attention to the first word of that verse. You notice he begins here with the word but. Now this word encourages us to look to what this is referring to. It causes us to examine the immediate context of the verse. First, you remember he's been speaking of the effects of the cross, as we have pointed out, the results of the crucifixion upon his body. The effects of the cruelty of the cross has caused his body to become dehydrated, as we read. Being nailed to the tree and having his body hanging for several hours has caused his bones to be dislocated from their normal positions. He's exhausted by the rigors of his ordeal of the night before as he stood judged by the Jewish leaders and before the civil government. The pains that they had afflicted upon him, his lack of sleep that he endured. And then he was taken to the place of the skull and was crucified. They pierced his hands and feet in, his, in order for his body to hang on the cross. All of this had taken its toll upon him. He's tired, he's weary, and he's fatigued. Secondly, we can see from the context how that he suffered the taunts of the crowds surrounding him. Those of the crowd are watching him as he's dying. Verse 17 says, they look and stare upon me. The words there impart the idea of not just a, a, as a bare glance and then going on with their business, but it's a look in which they are watching intently, trying to catch every one of his words, his movements, and his great sufferings. Their eyes are glued upon this scene before them, for great was the shameful and degrading spectacle that was before them. Isaiah 52, verse 14 says, As many as were stoned at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So yes, they would have been staring at him. Matthew tells us the same of their watching him. 
in Matthew 27, verse 36, and sitting down, they watched him there. Matthew is describing their watching in the very same manner, not a mere glance, but an intense glazing upon him, carefully considering as if guarding him from escape. And interestingly, Matthew records this watching right after they part his garments and his vesture, as in Psalm 22, verse 18. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. So Matthew has that in mind when he's writing his gospel there in chapter 27. So there is this activity that's going on. His executioners are taking what's left of his possessions. We can see the other disregard to the owner of these garments by these men, these soldiers. Lastly, another thing we can say of this is that he's near his death. He's about ready to give up the ghost, to finally die at the hands of wicked men. But not because he himself is powerless here in this point. Remember, he says in John's Gospel, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, <clears throat> and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. So even though we know that he perished at the hands of wicked men, it was only because he willed to do so. Now, all of this our Lord is suffering, and he's observing all of these goings-on that are about him at this point. So the word but then has this in mind as we'll be coming to verse 19 and explaining it. This word but is as well expressing here a contrast. As we've just observed from the context, our Lord is the one who is speaking of these things. And as he's speaking this, not to the crowds before him, but he's speaking in the ear of his heavenly Father. These are the part of his prayer he's uttering. And his prayer at this point contrast or contains a great contrast in that what he's been describing is what his enemies are doing to him and he is now turning from his enemies and their cruelties to speak to his heavenly father and how a great contrast this is from wicked sinful men and god hating men he turns to god the one who is holy just and righteous the one, as our Lord earlier said, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel, Psalm 22, verse 3. What a difference of characters then before us and before our Lord. What a contrast this is. He turns from men who obviously from their actions who care not for him, and he turns to God who has been with him since his birth. And if we think of our Lord as the eternal God, then he turns to the one who has been with him for all eternity. 
Remember, John tells us in his gospel in chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Proverbs 8, verse 30, Then was I by him, as one brought up with him. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. This, then, is where we are brought unto as we come, then, to this passage. Secondly, I want us to examine now what the words of our text contain. That is, we're looking at the contents itself of verse 19. First of all, we can see these words contain a prayer that our Lord utters. He is once again petitioning his Father in heaven. Now, if we define prayer as one speaking to God, then we would have to say all the words thus far in our psalm is part of a prayer, or is the prayer. For as we have pointed out often as we have preached that our Lord is addressing God even from the very beginning. He has been speaking to his Father throughout these passages. It has been one of continual prayer from the lips of our Lord if we look at it in that light. In fact, you'll look at verse 2 where he says, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. And from this prayer of his, we have seen petitions, pleas, and arguments throughout. So in saying that these words contain a prayer, I'm not ignoring what has gone before, nor denying he has not been praying up to this point, for he has. But these words do contain, I think, a renewed petition and plea from him. And these are drawn out from him because of what we have examined under the first heading regarding the word but. He's going through all these terrible agonies, the mockings of the people. And so he turns to God here and he petitions him in this manner. Now, we can observe at least least three things from the words which I hope to open up. By the way, verse 19, as you can see, is only the beginning of this renewed prayer of petitions. In verse 20 and 21, he continues to beseech God, asking other petitions on his behalf, which, Lord willing, I hope to cover in future sermons. But for now, verse 19, But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength, Haste thee to help me. Of those three things, I want us to notice first is that he prays basically two petitions. The first is that God would not be far from him. Now you can understand why such a petition would be found. One reason, because in verse 1, he has felt that God has forsaken him. At that point, as he's hanging upon the cross, he is our surety. He's our substitute, and he's taken our sins upon him. Our sins have been imputed to him. The one who knew no sin was made sin for us, as the Apostle Paul tells us. And this is the heart of the atonement of Christ for his elect, our sins being laid to his account and and his suffering for them. As the prophet Isaiah declares, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes were healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, verse 11, again, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now Peter tells us in the New Testament, who in his own self bare our sins on his own body on the tree, in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. For ye are as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of our souls. So you see the language there where he says he was bruised for our iniquities and so forth, and the fact that he, uh, God laid on him the iniquity of us all, and bearing our sins and our iniquities and such like. Those are words speaking there of the Lord Jesus having our sins laid to his count or being imputed to him. Now because of this, that is our sins being imputed to him, God then treats him as a sinner. And as such, he deserves then the righteous judgment of God. He then is punished as if those sins were his own. He's treated as if he had sinned, as if he had offended God. And that's why we read in Isaiah again, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. For thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. So we see there, not only the imputation of our sins to him, but he's punished for that very thing. And as we see from verse 22, he's punished by man and also by God. Now, this was in order to bring forgiveness and reconciliation for us. He satisfied God's justice on our behalf. As John tells us, he became the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10, herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word there means just simply the one who satisfies God, propitiated God. Again, in Romans 3, verse 24 being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And this, of course, is all part of the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we preach, which the scriptures have revealed unto us. Not to digress too far here, but... A part of his sufferings then included God forsaking him, as verse 1 gives us in that opening plea of our Savior upon the cross. This fact then could be the reason for his plea in verse 19, be not far from me. You see, God had withdrawn his face, his favor, 
from him. God's presence was taken from him. And in doing so, he has left his son alone on the cross to bear the terrible anguishes and pain and sufferings and the mockings of his enemies and also the punishment of God upon him. Our Lord, then, is desiring that God would once again be near to him, that he would once again draw nigh to him, that he would know again the presence of the Lord. Our Lord was anxious once again to know that blessed fellowship and communion that he has always known to have existed between him and his Father. He desired that favor that had once been his. But you see, our sins had marred all that. And now he wants it restored as before. Secondly, you notice he says here that God would help him quickly. He says, O oh, my strength, haste thee to help me. That the request of our Lord for restoration of God's favor, he wants us to know here, and he's, he's making it known here, is most urgent. And that urgency is indicated by this second petition of verse 19. He desires that God would quickly act as he is suffering, as God has drawn away from him, and as he is feeling the pains and the anguish of the cross. I'm sure he's very conscious that the end of his life as well was drawing near. He has not long to live. His body is broken. He's having trouble breathing. His bones are racked. The pain of both God and man bearing down upon him was cutting short his life. Two, we know in that same first plea when he questions God for being forsaken of him, he asks, why was his help so far away? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring. Verse 11, we see, declares that trouble is near. God's not, but his trouble is, and that there is no help, no help from man or from God. We read, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And now he desires help, and he desires it quickly. Now, this is not an unusual request from the people of God, and as we see here, from the Son of God himself. But this is a prayer that is often upon the lips of those of the Psalms. It's reasonable for men to ask to be delivered from troubles and that it be done so quickly. Only a misguided and proud spirit would think otherwise. Such would feel they are more superior in their own righteousness and holiness if they just passively go through troubles and not cry out to be delivered and help sooner. But not so with those of the Bible, and it's not so here with our Lord Jesus either. Listen to those who have their words recorded in the Psalms of their plea for help and a quick delivery. Psalm 38, verse 22. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Psalm 40, verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me, O Lord, make haste to help me. Psalm 70, verse 1. Make haste, O God, to deliver me, make haste to help me, O Lord. 
Psalm 70, verse 5. But I am poor and needy. Make haste unto me, O God, thou art my help and my deliverer. O Lord, make no tarrying. Psalm 71, verse 12. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste for my help. And then finally, Psalm 141, verse 1. Lord, I cry unto thee, make haste unto me. Give ear to my voice when I cry unto thee. We can see from these words, first, that it's not an unusual thing for holy men, holy men, to cry out for quick help from God. And secondly, we can see very plainly that they want this done, and they want it done now. They weren't ashamed or too holy or too righteous or too stoic to think that they can, their, their help should be delayed. But they need that help now. The words they're used are haste, which means hurry. Tearing means not to wait. So the psalmist so prays that. And so our Savior as well. He is that example for all of us to do so. So think it not unusual, strange, for the saint of God to want to be quickly delivered out of their circumstances. There's nothing wrong thinking that, and there's nothing wrong praying that. And of course, in all of this, our Lord was obedient. Hebrews 5.8 says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Philippians 2.8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. While he desires quick relief and help and prays for it, he is also willing that God's will be done, just as he did in the garden. You remember there, he prays three times, and he, it goes on to say, and he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. So while we may desire quick delivery and want that, and we may pray for it, but we also have to remember God will deal with us in his own time frame. But it still is okay to pray to be delivered and to do so quickly. The second thing that can be observed from these words is his acknowledgement of God as his Lord and his strength. Verse 19 again, be, be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help. You will notice that his first petition ends with the name Lord. And the second petition he, he prefaces with the recognition that the Lord is his strength. We see here that he calls upon that name that reveals that he is the everlasting and eternal God, the Lord, God who has existed from all eternity, the God who is infinite and all-sufficient in himself. And the Bible teaches us there is no other God as such. And it is the Lord whom he calls upon, the one whose excellent name is the Lord. 
Psalm 83, verse 18, that men <clears throat> may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. Now, it's no coincidence that he calls upon that name for help. Because we read in the 18th Psalm in verse 3, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. The word saved there means to be delivered. So, and helped. So he knows then, Jehovah's name is associated with the help of God. And then secondly, we read, O my strength, haste thee to help me. Those of the Psalms frequently regard God as their strength. They acknowledge God to be that very thing, their strength. And rightly so. And rightly so, as men are without strength, as it is needful that God be their strength. And here our Savior, taking upon himself our nature, acknowledges God to be his strength. The only one to be his help that would come from the strength of God. Now the third observation we can make from these words is the fact that there is an obvious trust in that he is calling upon the Lord. He has none other. Those in the crowd cannot or will not help him. His mother, while she would have done so, can only look upon him with sympathy and grief. You remember it was prophesied of her in Luke 2, verse 35. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. She can be no help to him. John, his disciple, is powerless to help. The Pharisees and other religious leaders will not. They were taunting and mocking him with no signs of repentance. The soldiers were ignoring him with no thoughts of any willingness or ability to help. They were following orders. There is none to help, none but God, as he notes here, who is his strength. He alone is only capable to help him in his troubles, and he will when it is time. God will work mightily on his behalf. Now I want us to consider just a few things in closing as we wrap this up. First thing I would like us to notice, what a wonder all of this is to us. This is no mere man hanging upon the cross. He is very unlike the two who are on either side of him. They deserve their place on the cross. But the one here who's innocent, he's not guilty. Yet here he hangs suffering. And thankfully, suffering on the behalf of his elect. This is all a great wonder for us and that this is the way God ordained in his great wisdom that we should have forgiveness of sins. Another great wonder about this is, as the soldier said, this is the Son of God. Again, this is no mere man hanging on the cross. This is the eternal Son of God united with human flesh. God manifest in the flesh. There has never been one like him and never will be. Secondly, this shows us how weak and helpless we are in the midst of of our afflictions. 
If this is so of our Lord, and it was, then how much more ourselves? And it is in the middle of our troubles we come to see just how weak we are. But as our Lord did, we should pray. We should pray to him who is our strength. The Puritan John Trapp made the comment upon this phrase, Oh, my strength. And he said, God is so to a believer, then especially when he feeleth himself weak as water. In other words, when we look to ourselves and see how weak we are, then that enables us by the grace of God to see the one who is our strength. And another amazing and wonderful thing here, as we gaze upon the Lord Jesus as he is the one who is crucified for us, we find our strength in him as we look to him as believers. The third thing I, we can consider here is our Lord is our great example in sufferings. We truly believe he is the substitute and surety of his people. As he died for our sins, he is also, though, our example. We don't want to take away from that. We don't want to take away from the first, that he made a substitutionary atonement for the sins of his people, that he stood as our surety for us, that he was punished in our stead, and that he died for our sins, and that he was buried and, of course, rose again the third day. We do not want to take anything from that, and never would would want to. But we also must realize he is as well our example. Peter tells us in his epistle in chapter 2 that he is that very thing. In the midst of suffering, our Lord Jesus is our example. And one of the examples he shows us here is that we too ought to be encouraged to pray to God in our afflictions and in our sufferings. We pray that God will bless then this message to us this morning. Amen.